0: Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the Nonprofit profit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest.
1: are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast
2: with richard jacobs hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast i have andy smith uh he's a research and uh teaching farm manager part of uh, Portland University. Uh, He works on sustainable agriculture and food systems. So we're going to talk about uh, his work and ask him some questions. So, Andy, thank you for coming.
3: Yeah, glad to be here.
2: If you would, tell me a bit about your your background first. How did you get into uh, looking at sustainable agriculture?
3: Yeah, I did a degree in business administration back
2: in California
3: and then did a number of years of community development work, uh, primarily in, in India, actually, and was working in urban settings, basically in urban squatter communities. And a lot of my Friends and neighbors there had recently, or within the last fifteen years and, and less, had migrated from their home villages into the city to look for better work, and but were also driven uh, because of the inability to continue farming um, in the way that they had been in their in their home villages. And so, um, was able to kind of witness this. Um, I guess this a rural to ter- to urban migration happen in the community that I was living in, and it just got me thinking about what it, uh, what are the reasons that rural communities are emptying out in so many cases, and the challenges associated with that, both for the individuals experiencing that migration as well as for our society as a whole. And it just got me curious about what it would look like to help make rural communities a bit more resilient and able to to continue. Farming and and to have more um, small landholders rather than when we see rural areas empty out a lot oftentimes that coincides with a lot of what's the word like accumulation land in fewer and fewer hands. And so
2: Uh, is this what you're working on right now or is this in the past?
3: No, just in the past. And so it just got me as I was starting to see some of the the issues associated with rural populations. And in, in India, I thought, well, I would be interested to learn about farming and what's actually involved in farming. What are some of the challenges that farmers are facing. And so when I moved to Canada, I got a job at a small scale environmental, well, small scale farm that was run a, out of an environmental conservation organization in South Surrey, British Columbia, and worked there for a number of years before coming here to Kwantlen Polytechnic. And yeah, so it's it's been an interesting, as I got into farming, I realized, oh, this is actually quite an interesting area of work.
2: A couple of questions about uh, the old project. What what were some of the reasons why rural communities uh, weren't sustainable and people moved out and didn't farm anymore?
3: Yeah, I think there were a number of reasons that we heard from from folks. One was just as, as the population grows, then these land holdings are divided among more and more people. And so those you know, each family as the generations go on, each family has less and less land to farm. And when using a more conventional farming method that's, that's larger scale, it becomes untenable quite quite quickly if you only have, you know, a couple of acres to farm. I had heard about other systems that where people were farming intensively on on smaller scale holdings. And and so that kind of piqued my interest. I think another significant reason in, in India was um, just the General environmental degradation and the loss of uh, fertility and also water scarcity issues and so I think that was that was a significant piece as well as just you know it, it's very challenging to make any significant living as a small scale farmer in in much of the world, including in in uh, north america
2: well I, um, I saw but... a, um, a show about the Pawnee Foundation, which means water. In India, yes. they did a lot of rainwater collection with swales and things like that, and that enabled uh, you know the people in these areas not to become migrant workers when things dried up. Um, yes. Did anyone suggest to these rural communities to do you know more uh, permaculture type stuff, more regenerative agriculture, but maybe first to retain more rainwater so that they could do those kind of things?
3: Yeah, you know, I wasn't actually involved much with the rural communities. It was I was. Basically, interacting with folks that had already migrated into the city, and so I don't, I don't have a lot of familiarity with that. But I know there are, yeah, a number of organizations working with small-scale farmers all over to address some of those, some of those issues. And and there are a lot of ways, obviously, to address them.
2: So, so what is the current work that you're doing today?
3: Yeah. So um, I am the farm manager for a teaching and research farm that's associated with our university's. Bachelor of Science in Sustainable Agriculture. And so all of our students that come through our program have classes that would, well, pretty much all of our classes have, you know, some lecture and then some hands-on components. And and we have a class uh, in particular that runs from January through December that's all hands-on on the farm. And so we really look at the farm that I manage as kind of the lab part of our program you know in the same way that a that a biology or chemistry uh, science student would have significant time in the lab we ensure that our students get some some time on the farm actually understanding both how to manage a farm from a a logistics and financial standpoint as well as um, to understand the farm as an ecosystem so um, looking at um, how both the cash crops and, and plants that aren't, you know, that are just part of the farm ecosystem can um, parts So it's not just the produce that we're pulling into the farmer's market. That's important. Like looking at it, looking at the farm as an integrated whole. And so, yeah, so we, we have opportunities for students to do a pretty deep dive in in actually getting some hands-on experience here. And then there's also so research what, what, that, that students yeah. would do on the farm. Um, and so I help coordinate that as well.
2: Well what are they learning about being on the farm? Do you have a curriculum or are they just kind of anecdotally learn things or what are they working on
3: yeah so um kind of the really significant um course that that runs from January through December students are here two days a week and and there are kind of set teaching times looking at plant physiology or looking at uh the pests that we're observing on the on the farm and and talking through how we can address those those things um and so there are specific things that are that are taught on the farm or in that in those courses, as well as it's it's kind of a learning by doing and and by having exposure to the system for for students to get a sense of what's involved in in growing the produce that we all see on our grocery shelves. What's you know, what are some of the the um the challenges, what are things that are relatively straightforward. Um so I think it's it's really an opportunity for. For students to get well, literally, get their hands dirty, but also um, to have quite a bit of exposure. A lot of farming programs or agricultural programs actually have no requirement to be on a farm in the summer when we grow food in North America, and so a lot of students and other programs can graduate from an agricultural program without any actual hands-on experience. And so we we really try and um, marry the you know the kind of traditional science. Um, pieces of, of plant physiology and and soil science, and those pieces with actually okay, what, what does this look like in the field, and and actually being able to observe it, and and I and do some of that thinking process in in the field.
2: Uh, okay, so I mean, what what specific skills or things are they? Are you doing soil growing just outside? Are you doing hydroponics? Uh, are there certain plants that you're growing that uh, you know for food? What what does it look yeah. like? Yep.
3: So we grow about, I guess we've got about three acres in cultivation and it's it's a mixed vegetable operation. So um, we grow, uh, I don't know, probably 40 or 50 different varieties of of vegetables. We grow a lot of it just out in the field and we have a few... High tunnels movable high tunnels which are like a greenhouse structure that that is actually on track so it allows us to extend the season so we can be growing in one plot in the spring and then and then move to a second plot for the summer and move to a third plot for the for the fall and so even in, in a system like that we're trying to help our students think through how to efficiently Use space and uh, financial resources to to only have just as an example, like in this case, plant protection in the form of a greenhouse. To to you only need that for certain crops at certain times of the year. So so to introduce our students to thinking about again as a system, if you're able to grow food vegetables year-round, which vegetables are going to need that protection during which parts of the year, and and then yeah, being able to kind of see that in, in a hands-on way, and then we. Uh, this farm that we're uh, that I manage is in kind of fairly early stages of development. This is about the fourth year that we're growing vegetables here, and in the next year or two, we'll also be adding uh, orchard, both freestanding trees as well as. Charlest orchards and like raspberries and and other kinds of bush fruit to give students exposure to some of those production systems as well, recognizing that those systems are quite distinct from growing vegetables or, or, you know, greenhouse growing. So we really want our students to be able to interact with quite a few different production systems, knowing that our students are going to go into lots of different areas um, after they graduate.
0: Before we continue... the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit com and click support us today. Now, back to the show.
2: Okay, and so then, what are some of the current learnings or research ideas or you know, mm-hmm. questions that you have in the main about what you're doing? Yeah,
3: so there are... Uh, yeah, our our students are also involved in in a three semester research program, and so they will come up with a research idea, carry it out on the farm in the summer, and then and then kind of collect their findings and 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 present that. And so there's always really interesting projects that students come up with on that in in a whole range of of areas. So you know, no till farming is is a big is generating a lot of interest certainly right now, and and in terms of both protecting soil health as well as minimizing disturbance to the soils, which would which helps with carbon retention in the soil, carbon dioxide, so that there's less carbon dioxide coming out of the soil. And so one of our students was quite interested in no-till systems, but there's not a lot of... And no-till systems are used quite widely in large-scale agriculture and some of our commodity crops. But in a smaller-scale vegetable Farm, they're not as as widely used, and, and there's some particular challenges in that. And so he went through a process of looking at various no-till methods to look and looked at how does this impact plant growth, uh, these different methods, how does it impact the time, both for weed control as well as for planting, uh, versus Tilling and and overall plant health, and so I haven't. I think he's still in the process of putting his findings together, but that's an example of the kind of research that that might happen. Another student was quite interested in minimizing the amount of peat that we use in our propagation mix. So peat, although it's a natural product, is 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 formed over such a long. It, it grows so slowly that essentially. What is,
2: like, what is peat? What is, oh, sorry.
3: Yeah, uh, peat moss um, is what's often used, it, it's um, from a plant called sphagnum moss, which grows in mostly northern climate. So there's a lot of peat that grows, and it grows in like peat bogs, right? That's, that's why the name peat's there. And so it's this very uh, slow growing moss, and it grows about a millimeter a year. So to get a meter worth of peat, and it accumulates over time, it just keeps building up and up. And so there are areas in northern Canada where you might have peat that's, you know, four or five meters deep. And so you think, oh, wow, there's a lot here, but that represents millennia of, of growth and development of that. And so what's ha- what happens now for a lot of greenhouse seedling production is is that peat is taken out and put in soil mixes because it's a it's a really it's almost like a sponge it really holds water really well but it's nice and fluffy as well so those new roots of of seedlings are able to move through it quite easily and and it holds that moisture that the the seedling needs at a young stage and so it's used as as part of our potting mixes in in growing seedlings and and in nurseries and that kind of thing
2: um are you using it as a cover crop or are you using it as just potting
3: no, it's not a. It's you wouldn't. It's it's like a dry product. So you just add it into a potting mix, or or a lot of the potting mixes that that one could buy at a at a you know at Home Depot or something would have peat as a as the base of that mix. And does so, it, uh,
2: in in order for it to grow, does it have to be in a in a wetland, or can it grow in drier conditions? And can it be used again in its living form instead of a dried form?
3: Oh yeah, that's a good question yeah no it's a it's a pretty adapted species to to wetlands so it um, can tolerate uh, standing water and it um, and it uh, grows in a much more acidic environment than a lot of plants um, which wetlands tend to be quite a bit more acidic and so it kind of uh, peat sphagnum peat moss really kind of inhabits this particular niche within the the wider ecosystem and, and grows where a lot of other plants wouldn't be able to grow but if you just took that plant and planted it in in a field it it would just dry out it it, it doesn't even we are experimenting actually with transplanting some some sphagnum from one part of a bog that's quite close to our farm to another bog that's just just nearby and seeing if we can propagate it in that way but it it's quite finicky to propagate i don't know if that answers your question
2: yeah well, i understand so you're using it yeah. uh, in a dried form so what have you noticed it does so uh, the potting soil mix how much better do the plants grow what's different
3: oh yeah so so Having, having the peat moss as part of a potting mix is like the industry standard. That's that's what um, is used all over. Um, so one of our students was was interested to know if there would be a way to get away from using peat moss in our potting mix and and if there were some alternatives. So she looked at using bent mushroom manure, which is the substrate that mushrooms grow in, in a commercial setting. So they take, the mushroom growers will take straw from chicken barns um, that has some chicken manure in it and so it's quite a bit of straw and then they also will use some peat to grow but then after the mushrooms grow out of that substrate then they end up just Getting rid of that—it's like a waste product. And so our students' question was, "Well, is there a way to take this waste product and actually incorporate it into our potting mix, and and have that be a replacement for the peat that we're that we're buying and that's being mined from these virgin peat fields?" And so, what can't, she... can't
2: you? Um, I mean, so again, but what are the effects of having peat in the potting soil? How beneficial is it? And you know, good farms have a, a small section where they are actively growing peat and harvesting it a little bit every year? for use in the soil
3: no i don't think that that would
2: work um, oh is it too think, slow or right or
3: a... yeah both it's too slow and and um you can't basically what you're harvesting is all this you could kind of think of it as like dead leaves or dead branches further down the stem it's a very small plant but you know all the stuff that's up below the top of the growing point and so when it's harvested commercially they're just taking out huge sections of it and and i think most farms wouldn't have a have a location on their farm where they could even where it would even take necessarily um, a lot of where the peat that that we're using um in our farming systems is coming from from northern areas where there isn't other other forms of agriculture happening
2: um, um uh, again can, can has anyone compared soil potting mix with and without peat and how much of a difference does it make is it dramatic yeah, exactly. or just a little?
3: Yeah. So that was, that was our, um, that was our student's question was, okay, is there a way to get peat out of this, out of the potting mix? And what are some alternatives? So she used this mushroom manure and, and then just used, and then she did some that was just a straight peat. She had a couple variations and she found that just removing all the peat from the mix and just having the mushroom manure along with some, you know, nutrient amendments, actually did have a pretty significant negative impact on the plant growth Um, but having a 50 50 blend of of peat and this mushroom manure was the plants actually did even better than the kind of the traditional potting mix that we had been using Um, and so (laughs) mm -hmm, yeah so it it um, allowed us as a farm to source a, a waste product basically for free from a from a mushroom farm and and reduce how much Pete we're buying, um, and also would be an opportunity for for other growers to to do the same if they're making their own
2: their own propagation mix. Um, what about um mycorrhizae um, inoculants to the soil? Has anyone looked at that?
3: Yeah, certainly that's an area of interest. We uh, haven't been looking at or we ha- we haven't done any research on our f- farm about that but that's certainly the one of the main reasons to go to a no till system like what I was talking about before is that it helps preserve some of the mycorrhizal networks that are in the soil and and if you're coming through with heavy equipment and and heavily disturbing that soil um you know it's going to be breaking up all those all those very uh, delicate filaments but yeah i think there's a a whole lot of um it's a huge area of of gaps in our understanding certainly as a in our science we just there's so much happening with mushrooms and, and mycelium that we are just kind of beginning to understand
2: any other um, modifications to your soil that seem to be working really well so you mixed you know some peat and some of this dry mushroom mix uh, that seems to work really well uh i don't know what have you yeah. tried just the uh, mushroom mix without the peat is it does it still um, work as well what else are you trying
3: yeah, no, just the just the mushroom mix without without peat. We we did notice a decline in the in the health of the seedlings, um, and so yeah, so that was our learning of from our students' research of of having this blended mix. But in terms of the soil in in the field, yeah, this this site's actually quite an interesting farm, and I would say kind of the farm itself is an experiment, in that where we're located in just outside Vancouver, we're on an island that. Uh, most of the island used to be um, a peat bog and has been drained in in different ways and and built up into a, a an, an urban area. And so the site that we're farming on is actually a, a a an old bog that was drained and but has been kept as agricultural land. And so without going into too much detail, we we got onto this property about think about seven years ago, um, but the native soil, the peat soil, was quite heavily contaminated with with heavy metals from past use of the site. There had been like a firing range, and so there were heavy metals in some of the the, um, gun shells and stuff. As well as if you farm a peat soil, the only way to do that for most crops, most vegetable crops is because it's a very acidic soil and most most vegetable crops um, like a pretty neutral um, soil, so lots of peatlands are farmed, um, but they are farmers will put in lots of lime, which brings up the pH and nutrients, um, and then it ends up being this really this soil that that is quite productive. But because peat is basically a hundred percent or eighty percent carbon, um, if you are farming it, there's you're you're going to be causing a lot of that peat to break down. And of course, when carbon breaks down, it becomes carbon dioxide and releases greenhouse gas. I mean, that's it just the carbon dioxide is released from the soil into the atmosphere. So when we had the opportunity to farm this site, we said, okay, well, we can't farm it because of the heavy metals. And also we don't want to farm it uh, just as the peat because of of the the negative greenhouse gas emissions that would be associated with that, and so we worked with the city, who's the owner of this property, to actually import uh, mineral soil. So soil that doesn't have any organic matter in it, but so you you know it just be like sand or clay and didn't have nutrients in it either. It just uh, it was uh, fill from uh, construction, uh, a big expansion of the airport that was happening nearby. And so um, when I started about four years ago, that soil had just been layered on top of the peat and basically the the intention was to farm in this new soil that we had brought in and permanently sequester the the peat and the carbon that was in the peat underneath and so it was interesting when I first started it was it looked like a moonscape because there were no nutrients mm. in this in the soil. It was really like there was nothing growing the the first year there were hardly even any weeds because the soil had come from it had been dug out at the depths where there weren't you know weed seeds or anything like that, and over the last three- uh, yeah three or four years now um uh, by adding lots of compost as well as pretty intensively cover cropping so using grasses like wheat or rye uh as well as um legumes like uh peas or clover, the quality of the soil is really dramatically improved, and it still feels like there's a lot of room for. Improvement in the soil, uh, like we start at a pretty low baseline, but it 's been really remarkable to see how quickly the soil has really improved and, and regenerated and, and and gone from this soil where there's very little nutrient as well as very little microbial life um, because it was just this mm. there wouldn't have been anything for the microbes to eat right because there wasn't there wasn't any organic matter there, and to see it come to life has been really really interesting, so we're continuing to to follow those practices and 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 you know it's it's interesting in in regenerative ag what you're basically trying to do is put sunlight and air into the ground right uh so it's the sunlight when plants photosynthesize it they're they're creating nutrients that then and, and sugars that you know we are harvesting off of, but then also the residue from from those plants are in and when it's a cover crop all the all of that plant is then Turned back into the soil and it and it provides the kind of the 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 basis of the food chain for for the soil life that
2: um, that we're trying to cultivate as well so I um, should tell the uh the students if they use peat more than once to be a repeat customer
3: that's right that's right
2: bad bad joke yeah. Hmm. okay yeah so um what what theoretically i don't know how much of an improvement in yield or other metrics can you get by using this uh peat mushroom combo or you know, is there still a while to dial the recipe in for what you really want?
3: Yeah. So the the peat mushroom combo is really that that's really just in our propagation mix. So we've looked like we looked at overall seedling health rather than uh so it's just kind of at the first stage of of our uh, production system. So after after our plants are um you know transplanted into the field then they're in a soil system they're not um they're not just dependent on that mix that we've created so it'd be a bit different than saying that yeah quite different than than a aquaponic type or not aquaponic hydroponic type system where where they're going to be in a container uh and just getting a nutrient solution yeah
2: okay very good um where can people find out more about the the work you're doing and you know uh, i don't know if you're looking for volunteers or people that uh you know people that are local but um you know, again, where can people contact you best?
3: Yeah. So uh, it's, it's best to check out our website, which is uh, kpu.ca slash agriculture. And there they can find information both about the, the farm that I've been describing as well as um, the the program the bachelor's program that we have certainly if if people are, are local you can also find information there about how to come and visit and we really love having people come out to the farm and it's it's quite a unique site being uh, we're right in the middle of the city We're we're within about 10 minutes of a of a metro stop and so it's this really interesting farm right in the middle of the city that we're always keen to have people come and visit.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, very good, Andy. Thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been an interesting call and and I appreciate it.
1: Yeah. Thanks for the time. Take care. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.